Something terrible is happening in this house, and we've got to get help. And we will, as soon as I get that dead old woman locked up and safe and sound. Now, stop prevaricating, girl. Get the hearse ready. We're going body snatching. Welcome to TARDIS Talk, the weekly podcast where we discuss all things Doctor Who. This week, it's nothing but hot air as we discuss the first historical of the Doctor Who revival, The Unquiet Dead, and joining me in this tale of horrors and phantasmagoria are Matt and Cook, as per usual. Hello, 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 gents. Hello. Hello. So, The hello. Unquiet Dead. This is, my, this is my choice, wasn't it, this week? So I, I kind of like threw this one on the table. Slammed it down. Um, and it was a good choice. It actually was. I completely forgot that this is one of my favourite Eccleston stories. I mean, there's not many to choose from, but it's still one of my favourites. So that's a very good start. Um, yeah, it's because it's this is episode three, isn't it, of the first series? So uh, we're we're kind of like in still in brand new territory, especially with the fact that this is the first historical episode as well. There's like obviously never been any historicals since the show started yeah, at this point. Because they jump forward and then jump back, don't they? And mm. I'm quite glad. I think they picked an interesting setting to jump back to. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So this story is written by Mark Gatiss, um, and this is his first his first Doctor Who um, story um, on screen. Anyway, uh, kind of think it's his best. <laughs> I don't know from uh, what's your take on that between you both. I, I, obviously, he's, what, what's he done? Let's just reel off what he's done. He's done that. He's done the Lazarus experiment, didn't he? Or was he just in that? I think he might have written it as well. He did the Crimson Horror. Ugh. Um, sleep no more. Sleep no more. Another great one. Uh, <clears throat> um, I did the idiot's lantern. Oh, he did again. That's kind of that's that's kind of in my opinion anyway. Largely forgettable. Shoot Victory of the Daleks. That was Mark Gatiss. Was it really? Cold War. Oh my god. I, I like just realised. I like. Have you realised what I've realised? Yeah. <laughs> As you kept talking, I was like, "Hang on, there's a pattern. A two very particular there." What's the What's the pattern? What, what uh, so the two episodes that we're we've picked are also Gators. So we're doing <laughs> oh, a Gators really? trilogy. <laughs> oh, wicked! All right. In that case, then uh, I will definitely make sure that I tag him when we when we put this up. <laughs> so we're doing a Mark Gators trilogy. Um, won't be consecutive, but the next few that we'll be, we'll be reviewing will all be Mark Gator stories as it happens. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, this is my favourite out of all of his stories in, in Doctor Who. It's also weirdly like uh, a Christmas special aired at Easter, <laughs> which I never picked up on on first viewing. Um, the fact that they mentioned it's Christmas is throwaway, really, isn't it? Because I don't think there's any Christmas trees or anything. There's like Christmas well, candles. No, I think sold. it's a bit throwaway, but I think it's quite nice. Again, we're talking about this is the first... Uh the first story to the past and there is the good mm. moment with um uh, the doctor and rose on the tiles who's experienced by the fact of you know christmas day happens uh, christmas eve sorry christmas day happens once and then it's gone and that's it yeah. you never get to experience it again but here she is so i think it fits quite nicely in the the story that in explaining that new notion to the bringing the show back yeah very much so and we're also doing that thing in this particular story where we are it's again because I think they mention it in the end of the end of the world, don't they? Where the Doctor reveals to Rose about the fact that there was a great war and his species were wiped out by another species. Blah 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 blah. And um, again, they drop in the time war element into this, so that's kind of segued into it through the through the, the reasoning for the Gelf not having a home world anymore, etc. So, and it's it's the first story where we've got a historical character in it, 
uh, in the new series one. Obviously, Charles Dickens, portrayed by Simon Callow. So there's lots of firsts in this one, tons of firsts in this one. Mm-hmm. What did you guys make? I mean, in, in terms of the story, did you enjoy it? That's probably like the key question. It's all right. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's I'm all sure I around about offer. Like, what, yeah. All right. Well, go on, Matt. I, was say, I think it's quite a strong one, actually. I think mm. it's uh, it it's an in, it's an interesting content. I was quite I don't want to say disappointed because I'm not upset with the ending at all, but I would have quite liked it to have been more of a different ending with the Gelf as opposed to just being another then surprise as a sinister uh, stealth invasion. But I quite liked the direction they were going. Actually, when they were talking about again, it's sort of the refugees and the moral dilemma of using corpses. But yeah, yeah. that's just an opinion. But it's very much just an opinion on it. It's still a strong story, even with the ending they went with. Yeah, I, I've, that's probably my only criticism, and it's not to do with the story. It's actually to do with the sound mixing at the end. I just cannot hear what the Gelf are saying when they go nuts. No matter how many times I watch this this episode, I cannot understand what they're saying. Uh, really, I don't kind of that problem. What, what are they actually saying? <laughs> What, what, oh, that's, that's a bit where? open do you want me to rehearse the whole final scene Wait, yes please yeah. <laughs> line by line no no basically it's when they turn turn to fire when they turn red um, to signify angry when they turn red and they basically kind of go nuts um, they start saying something like we want to invade the planet but do they give a reason why but they don't have any form that's kind of the point they want well, to be why don't they want the corpses again. why don't they want to just ride around in the corpses what's the reasoning behind that do they say well, they do want to ride around the corpses, but they need more. There's billions and billions of them, and actually they need billions of corpses to fill. Right, okay. That's the only logic then. Right, fair enough. Okay. There was basically, I don't know whether it's just the sound mixing when I was watching it on an iPlayer or not. I just couldn't understand what they were saying. I was sat there squinting going, well, what, 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 what are they saying? What are they saying? Cook, what? One of the things I do want to point out, just quickly with the story, mm. though, if we jump right back to the beginning, one of the first uh, scenes of the, of the actual episode is um, uh, Sneed's light in one of the... Uh, gas lanterns in the house and actually mm. it's a really really small thing which if you're on first time watching you don't pick up but that is such a big a yeah. big tick to a lot of the plot as it moves forward uh, yeah, it's, not, not, it, yeah not just where the where the girls are trapped and how they defeat them but you know it opens up a lot that you don't pick up on when you first watch it very clever bit of foreshadowing yeah yeah mm-hmm. very much so what, could, what you, you you just thought it was all right what what could you do to improve it if if, if you if you if you're not jumping for joy about it? What is it specifically that you just kind of like? It's passable. What what could they do to improve it? I find the ending lackluster, especially with how um what was it Gwyneth? She seems to sort of mm. really revere these people that the girl they probably have they been speaking to her entire life basically so, yeah sort of whispering to her I think haven't they I think yeah because she calls just... them their angels yes yeah. But she changes her mind so quickly. <laughs> I think it, she goes, you're lying. And then the doctor says something. And then she's like, actually, all right, then I'll just blow the house up. Isn't it because she's dead already, though? Like, the doctor's like, she died the second she stepped in the arch. Yeah, so. but I mean, she's still conscious and aware. I suppose so, yeah. I mean, well... she seems to change her ent- like everything she's believed for her entire life mm. in a split second, just to resolve the plot. Yeah, well, um, maybe. Maybe. I think there's only so much you can pack into 45 minutes though isn't there really um but that's another point though which is just talking about the time element about it i didn't feel watching it that it was 45 minutes it flew by for me it did fly by yeah i thought exactly the same thing yeah i thought exactly the same thing it it, it whizzed by and there's also whole sequences that i completely forgotten about like the seance that had just completely <laughs> skipped my mind um i thought that was what what this this is mark gatiss to a t this story it's classic ghost story style writing 
horror you know a lot of the old classic victorian elements kind of put in there you see a lot of his writing and things like league of gentlemen um uh, i think he's done like some of the christmas ghost stories on bbc4 as well potentially um but uh, you know it, it's it's just trademark Mark Gatiss horror story writing, and I think this is probably like the strongest example that we've got in Doctor Who of of of, of him doing that. Is there anything else that you can think of off the top of your head that you weren't overly sold on, or is it just because it's not like an incredibly powerful story that I'm not a fan of sort of ghosty like stories anyway, to be honest. Okay. Um. So already that puts this episode on the back foot for me but it just seems so like flat like especially uh, the one thing i did notice at the start is the cold open it's supposed to obviously evoke like an ominous tone mm. but there's literally no background music or anything i was gonna talk about this when we get around to talk about thing. the soundtrack yeah. like, i don't i couldn't name a single track that played during this mm. I don't know whether that's intentional or not. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know whether that's intentional or not. Here's a question for you, actually. Just, I can't think if this is accurate or not. Do you get on with the historicals that well? Um, Do you prefer the futuristic or off-world stories? Because I'm generally yes, but there are some historicals I do quite enjoy. Okay, and actually, controversially, I do enjoy Demons of the Punjab. So. Okay, fair enough. No, that's fair enough then. Because I think there's there's elements, especially like, let, let's not beat around the bush, right? Yeah, this this episode was 16 years ago. You know, it's de- it it does look dated in parts now, as as much of two th- as, as much of um, series one's episodes do. It does look dated in parts. Um, some of the visuals, some of the acting, some of the sound effects and stuff. Um, it kind of evokes to me when I'm watching it very much theatrical, kind of like a stage play style. Um, and I, I was with some of the sets and stuff like that, and I wonder if that's part of it as well. Um, how it doesn't feel as grandiose, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I do know what you mean because I remember that when they walked into the morgue, I was looking at the actual set and there's like a saw <laughs> 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 and like hammers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. 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 I don't, I, I don't know if I feel that it's it's like I said stage playish. I don't I don't think it necessarily comes across that way to me. But I I, I agree with what you're saying, and it does feel like they use uh, a lot of again. It doesn't quite something about it doesn't add up, even though again it still seems all quite authentic again costume wise and uh, and a lot of sets. I think again the basement is probably the best example of where it starts to go a little bit awry. But again, talking about sort of the theatre, the back room and we're actually talking about the rooms around the morgue as well mm. i thought they're all very well put together yeah mm. and i think one of the things to talk about not being as grandiose or being as larger scale story i think this i think this is one of the things about who that we like though is that it doesn't always have to be massive trying to get to space opera type things sometimes it can be a self-contained story in a house yeah and we probably haven't got that recently yeah or in later series as much of the mark as we have in this episode that pretty much changed i reckon around about 7a when series 7a when the 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 angle that moffat took was very much movie of the week style um approaches with the episodes that i think i think all the episodes from that point started getting very cinematic almost um almost quite blockbustery especially in the in the in the stories that were being told and stuff um whereas a lot of the 2005 stuff feels very serialized drama um, like the follow-up episodes from these ones, World War Three and Aliens of London, they just feel very much like an episode of EastEnders with aliens in them, if that's fair to say. 
so I, I yeah I kind of yeah I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you on that one I think I think it's possibly just that these are a little bit more basic shall we say it's probably a better way of putting it maybe they're a little more basic um and I'm what Miguel says, which you pointed out as well, is you definitely uh, hit the hit the mark about sort of some of the dated effects. It definitely doesn't have 20, 21 and 22 spots. <laughs> I know. Well, this is the thing about Series 1, because obviously they had to prove themselves. So they were experimenting, really, weren't they, big time the BBC with, with the show at this point, because they didn't know if it was going to be a hit. And... Um, they'd never really kind of like especially in 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 that era they never really kind of done serialized drama where the set changed so drastically each week i mean the week before they were at the end of the world and the following week they're in you know victorian cardiff or dickensian cardiff rather um so it is literally all over the place um, i wonder where they filmed that because 1869 cardiff is very convincing look at the set dressing you know, looking in the street and there's the people walking around and the horses and carts and stuff like that. I think it was dressed really well in terms of, you know, the setting and stuff like that. I can't, I can't yeah. criticize any of that. I agree. And again, I you sort of talk about the set dressing as well as the actually outfits, the horse carriages. Again, this is what I said earlier about it feels, it feels very good. And I disagree with the whole, it felt uh, stage playish. I think mm. actually that when they, if we take out the CGI elements of it, it's it's quite well put together. Yeah, you just broke up, by the way, halfway through that, but I think I got the gist of what you were saying. Okay. Basically, it looks pretty. <laughs> it looks pretty. It does look pretty. It looks very pretty. It's a good template as well for historicals going forwards because we do have, like... We don't have them that often, do we, historicals in, in, in uh, New Who? They kind of pop up. Is it? Do we get one every season? I suppose we do, don't we? Because, well, Series two's historical. It's um, Tooth and Claw, isn't it? Yeah, we also get the Idiot's Lantern. Which is... uh, yeah, well, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose that is a historical to some extent, at least. Anyway, it's, that's more. A, I was going to say, is there a difference between a historical and a period piece? I suppose period. We, uh, does girl in the fireplace count? Yeah, that's another one. That's definitely historical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's quite a few of them actually now. Now, now you're pointing them yeah. out. There are quite a few of them. Um, it was very brave of them to kind of like have a go at doing it in in that one. So just. So we've diverted ever so slightly there, but the setting basically is what we're getting at, being set in the in in the um, late eighteen uh, hundreds. Um, it, it sort of pays off well, I think. Um, it's it's funny that it's set at Christmas, but it's aired at Easter. Uh, the the concept, um, even like Dickens metas. So so Charles Dickens metas the whole bloody concept halfway through the thing anyway, because he basically comments on the fact that it's really novel for gaseous creatures to inherit the cadavers um of people and then drive them around like horse-drawn cars which is it is a very clever concept it's perfect writing if you think about it you know there's a there's a species and they're made of gas so what they're going to inhabit well farty corpses really aren't they that's basically what they're going to inhabit because that's the best thing that they can do i do like yeah, and, and i like the fact where we get that as such a succinct answer as well there's not a long complicated reason as to why why that's happening it's mm. just that straightforward it's the perfect environment it, it's a it's a physical uh yeah way they can manifest why wouldn't they exactly and it's feasible as well it's not beyond the realms of kind of like logic you know a gaseous life form if it if it's capable of inheriting it, it you know taking host of a body then it's feasible to think that it could move the body and control the limbs and the digits and stuff like that it kind of there's some warped logic to it whereas you've got some concepts in doctor who throughout the past 60 years that are just kind of 
batshit crazy and don't make any sense but you just go with it because it's fantasy i quite like that uh, one of the things i really enjoyed in this one actually was at the very very start it's the first death when um uh, that lad's basically sobbing over his dead grandma and she comes alive and she snaps his neck yeah <laughs> she's like reaches up and she grabs his neck and starts throttling him and, and then she snaps That's, his neck well, it's I mean, like the, wow the, the deaths are quite merciless in this episode yeah, yeah definitely again, with sneed again it's just straight to the point of yeah grab and even with the clicks of the next yeah. break yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I find... <laughs> Not the reaction I was expecting. No, no. I found the cold open so comical. <laughs> Did you really? I think it's supposed to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, though, to some extent. It's supposed to be kind yeah. of, like, very typical of a, you know... Its character is not, doesn't come off as a serious character to me, so everything he does, including the stuff that goes on with the actual, like, morbid sequences... <laughs> It just makes me laugh. All right, that's a fair point. Let's 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 talk a little bit about the characters then. Let's 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 talk about the characters. So, the Doctor and Rose. We've spoken about them before when we've covered this era, but let's just talk about them specifically in this particular story. I think this is obviously like the Doctor is in complete heaven and ecstasy because this is the first time he's able to take Rose to something she recognises as the past. So she, it's going to feel like more of a treat for her. Um, and he's. My take, and I can sum this up very succinctly, my take on the Doctor and Rose in this particular episode is he's trying too hard and she's just a plain whole bitch in this story. <laughs> she's not pleasant in this particular story. She shows some kind of affection towards the end um, to the situation, but she's just... I don't know. She's very much a Vicky Pollard throughout this particular is episode. She? Go on, ex- explain that to me, because I'm not sure I'm with you. What is the bit? She's, there's a bit when she's kicking off about... Uh, the doctor uses that perfect line about um, basically don't apply your own morals to the situation. If you want to, you can bugger off. And it's because she's kicking off at the idea that she don't. They're going to rob the body. She doesn't think it's right. Yeah, she doesn't think it's right that the the, the Gelf inhabit the bodies of the dead. And she but gets... I think again in the scenario, it's it's a reasonable thing to question. Of course, I don't it think is. it's unreasonable to challenge that. It's not. No, this is it, it's, it's it's great writing of the character because it just goes to show that she's not always this kind of like. Uh, I'm going to be written down in Hoovians by this, but she's not a Sarah Jane who basically just rolls along with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, she, everything to her is new for the first time, and she's very much kind of like, like you say, Matt. You know, it's her gut instinct to say no, this is wrong, so she's going to kick off about it. And I think that's brilliant writing of the character. Doesn't make the character likable, makes her very fucking whiny and annoying, and it really irritated me when she started getting gobby about it. I just felt like saying, "Shut up, Rose." You know, back in your but box. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great example there of where she's probably speaking for the audience at that point. Because again, you take the Doctor and he's talking about about it. It's, it's recycling, and that will make sense, and you can see his angle. But hers is pretty much another safe angle that she's fighting for which is it's different when we're talking about people you necessarily don't know but these are dead people that should be respected and actually how would you feel if your nan popped it and then suddenly her body was walking around being controlled by somebody else don't know <laughs> I was going to make a crude joke <laughs> then but I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> that's what I mean I don't think it's a reason I don't think it made her unlikable at any point <laughs> I mean my grandma could clear rooms with her gas but that was a completely different thing so <laughs> wow <laughs> No, I think I think there's other aspects, kind of like um, there's a bit where the doctor's like, "Yeah, so this isn't uh, Naples, it's Cardiff. That's fine, that's fine. It's not 1860. It's it's not 1860. It's 1869. That's fine, that's fine. I know it's the other way around, isn't it? And then he says it's not Naples, it's Cardiff, and she's like, oh. but that bit I don't get because they spend, you know, the Doctor and Rose spend the whole episode knocking Cardiff. I'm not quite sure why. 
even when the doctor's trapped in the basement, he's like, I'm going to die in a basement in Cardiff. In <laughs> and it's like, what's wrong with Cardiff? <laughs> in 1869, yeah. That's a very fair point. I don't know. I don't know what my take is. I'm not a big Rose fan, as I said in the past. I don't, I don't know what you, you guys thought of her in this particular episode. I think, Matt, you've made yourself kind of... Yeah, well, no, because like I said, I, I have got varying opinions on Rose, but I don't think she's unlikable in this episode. I think you might be projecting a little bit there against her. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think before I get myself I in trouble? I think Rose is just consistent with who she is in this episode. I don't think there's anything particularly stand out about it. Yeah. Well, in terms of development between the characters then, and my criticism aside, what do you guys make of, of the relationship between her uh, and the Doctor at this point? Because it is definitely God. it is definitely blossoming, isn't it? And I say that in the sense that we're all thinking. There's definitely uh, some sort of crush going on between the two of them. Yeah. yeah. Which I is mean, weird, because even if he wasn't a Time Lord, he's like 40-odd and she's, what, 17? He's she's 19. 19. Well, 19 and 40. I mean, it's not unreasonable, but it's still a bit creepy isn't it or am I going to get in trouble for saying that <laughs> I think so. she's legal so it's fine <laughs> I don't know I it's don't know. a bit on the weird side it is a little I'm bit I'm happy to get punched in the face by any 40 year olds that are 19 year old I, I, mean, I mean when you put it when you put it into context if you if this came up as a news headline where um because obviously bear in mind the next episode as well 19 year old girl goes missing for a year reappears a year later with a 40 year old man i love you can understand that, why it I might raise some eyebrows yeah i do love that again yeah. i don't i think it's just a number as long as it's consensual and happy and everyone's happy with the arrangement who cares oh, arrangement well. that sounds far too formal it's... doesn't it <laughs> well, when you have to call it an arrangement it's weird <laughs> yeah right <laughs> I'm no. sorry that I didn't get the terminology correct but you got this is also the first time that Doctor Who's explored a romantic relationship between the Doctor and the Companion so in its entire history uh, were there any there was, I think this is the first I can't remember did End of the World kind of show any glimmers of a relationship between the two of them. I don't think it did, did it? It was very much innocent. And I think this is the first time when there's those lingering looks and the holding of the hands and I'm glad I'm here with you. You know, I'm glad I'm going to die here with you type thing. And you question it for the first... I remember watching it for the first time and and questioning and thinking, just myself thinking this... No, that can't be what I think that meant. That seems a little... A little too familiar, you know? It seems a little bit... Because he is definitely on, on a mission to impress, isn't he? There's no denying that. Yeah, it's... well, you, there's there's several shots throughout the episode where she's like interacting with anything basically, and yeah. he's just staring at her, grinning. Stood there, gurning. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really creepily. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, yeah. There's one thing I do want to point out, which I saw in this episode, which I kind of realised that I missed, and that's interior shots of TARDIS flight scenes. I can't recall the last time we've had a good shot where we've had either the Doctor and a companion or just the Doctor f- flying manically around the console. Uh, we had one in last season. In fact, the Doctor was teaching Yaz how to fly. And she yeah, was... I mean, that whole the manic running flying trying yeah, to do Yeah, they don't do that anymore. They don't do that anymore, do they? Yeah. It off, and I didn't realise how much I missed it. Yeah, the, it only really seemed to happen massively in the first series. I got the impression in the first series that the TARDIS, the, 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 like the coral interior and the, the coral desktop theme and stuff, I got the impression that, that the way the Doctor reacted with that, you know, beating the shit out of it with a hammer and, like you say, Matt, running around it frantically and getting Mickey, Rose and Jack to do everything they could to keep it running and stuff, I got the impression the TARDIS is kind of either on its last legs or it was really badly beaten up and then it kind of you're right those sequences just got less and less didn't they even in series mm. two and so forth and so forth um 
Yeah, yeah, I miss those as well. I do love that that shot of the TARDIS at the start, though, where it's kind of just tumbling mm. through this time vortex and you can hear it, and it's just, oh, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, no, I, I miss those those visuals, definitely. I love that time vortex. Russell, yeah, Arty, time Russell vortex. T. Davies needs to bring it back. He needs to bring that, that time vortex back. Oh, you know he won't. <laughs> no, no, of course not. It's part of the charm that it changes all the time, though, isn't it? Yeah. Very much so. So moving on from the characters, then. Um, let's talk about himself... Dahl's Chickens, Charles Dickens, played by Simon Callow, an amazing actor. Really, really good actor. I think this is... Did we have any famous actors in End of the World? Not really. We had Zoe Wanamaker, who's very famous for like Harry Potter and my family and stuff, but there was she wasn't even kind of like in face, was she? She was just a voice acting well, part. She was, was she, I think she kind of was in face, but she's just not. Not but, but not <laughs> her eyes are on screen but no but this is the first yeah. the first time in New Who that we've had a, a, a famous acting role with a with a very significant part isn't it I suppose is what I'm getting at um, with Simon Callow doing it I take it you guys had never heard of Simon Callow beforehand still haven't heard of him <laughs> wow. oh, I'm going to come up with a list of movies for you guys to watch at some point Get you out of here. Put them up, we'll put them on the list. <laughs> get you, get, you, cul- get you cultured, <laughs> cultured and educated. Um, I'm just a, a very, very likable character, a very likable portrayal. I prefer this portrayal of a historical character over the portrayal of uh, William Shakespeare in the Shakespeare Code. I think I'd rather, basically, what I'm saying is, I think I'd rather sit down with Charles Dickens for a cup of tea than William Shakespeare. I agree, and yeah, I think but you I could find... definitely you could definitely go to a nightclub with that Shakespeare. <laughs> what, and then go around right, head, headbutting people afterwards? Yeah, <laughs> the, you, you could do. Couldn't, the, yeah. But the one thing I think I, I'd get is with a lot of, when we meet a lot of his, um, historical figures in Who, they all seem to pick up quite quickly and yep. accept sort of the reality yep. of what's going on. I quite liked the naysayer approach that we had. Yeah, he really wasn't interested in the slightest, was he? He was like, no, no. no. And he, he, I, I yeah, love that scene when he goes in and he's chicken the body. Exactly. Yeah. And that scene is definitely a scene that could have been taken out, but it added a lot yeah, to hugely. what we we're trying to get out of that character. Yeah. And it's just all of his dialogue with the Doctor is perfect as well. Like the the, the, the interaction and the banter between the two of them when that the whole coach ride where they're talking about kind of like the Doctor's <laughs> trying to explain by, by what way am I a cool implement for you know this <laughs> is fantastic absolutely fantastic um yeah it's a lot more of a realistic approach isn't it compared yeah. to the just historical character appears and the doctor like, starts bowing down to them these days yeah or the slightly lazy approach where uh there's already some established history between the characters i.e winston churchill because it's easier just to do that rather than having to go through the whole rigmarole of doing what they do um yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I think this is possibly one of the better better historical interactions between two characters. I wonder if it was always intended because there's a lot of elements to do with Charles Dickens in this story. If you know, like I, watching it tonight, I noticed for the first time ever when he basically runs, he abandons them at the end. You know, he mm-hmm. turn, turns tail and abandons them, and the gas face comes out the the, the knocker on the door, echoing oh. Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. I mean, you're a bit slow. Yeah, well, like I say, it's the first time I've seen it in a long time. And I didn't even realise that, but that's because I don't oh, really? care. That's literally the scene he's reciting there when he's on stage. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, it's not even that. It's just a very famous scene from A Christmas Carol. But uh, yeah, well, it, it, is. it couldn't be any more on the nose. He was literally talking about it at the beginning of it. <laughs> yeah. Do you mean the actual book? Because I don't even think I've read it. So oh, You must know the that. story of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, but I don't know who Jacob Marley is. If you're confused, there's a Muppet's Christmas Carol. It's pretty close. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I know. I was in it. <laughs> brilliant. Um, yeah, I just think the character of Dickens, I think, is brilliant. And I don't think this story would have worked as well with any other historical character in it. I think you had because because he's got his background of kind of ghost stories and stuff. Um, well, I get the sense it was intentional. This story it was built around Dickens. Oh, hugely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Slotting Dickens into random. Well, that's it. That made that's like what I'm Mary Seacole and the Santana. That's my point. That's my point entirely. That's entirely my point. Yeah. So basically, a lot of the historical stories that we get these days just have a historical character in it because it's it's period appropriate. But that one, as she just said, Cook is it was written around Charles Dickens and his fair his concepts and stuff like that um, yeah and it teaches some really cool stuff as well like the fact that he never managed to finish off that the mystery of Edwin Drew or whatever it was called um, the blue elementals um, I'd never known about that I ended up looking into it after the episode and thinking god that's really interesting actually um, and I like the way that sort of Doctor Who marries into that quite well it definitely seemed to have uh, I don't know just a a touch of the cleverness about it in a way that didn't make any of it questionable and I think that's the key thing I think when it starts questioning shit it takes you out of it and you end up sitting there thinking you know oh, I don't really think the character would act like that or you know it doesn't seem particularly believable and he's got some great one-liners as well he's, he's very much kind of like the serious character but also the character with the comedy elements isn't he mm. I don't Dickens. know yeah, 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 Dickens, yeah he did yeah. have a couple of comedy moments didn't he yeah, he's the one who keeps coming up with questioning stuff and the whole concept of the seance and whatnot, which was quite funny. Um, when he when he first meets the doctor on the stage and he calls him a wag, says, ah, here he is now, the wag. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Fantastic. So we've also got, in her first appearance in Doctor Who, Eve Miles playing Gwyneth, who is supposedly a distant genetic relation of uh, Gwen Cooper, of course, from Torchwood. According to, uh, what was that? Journey's End. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, she's obviously not a descendant. Well, that's that always. <laughs> all right, you. all right, calm down, buddy. <laughs> How the hell could she be connected though? Unless it's like a cousin. Uh, it's just a throwaway line that Russell C Davies put in. No, there are no such things as throwaway lines. I will not accept it until I find a, the Cooper. <laughs> it was absolutely family. a throwaway line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to play around with the fact that it's the same actor. Yeah. Because they, they call out in the episode in Journey's End about being some sort of temporal connection to how she yeah, got there yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Because she does thing. ask the question if she's related to an old line, but I think it's meant to be implied. It's oh, that line is so ham-fistedly kind of like just inserted into the script as well. It's really awkward. It is. It's a nice I'm nod. Glad that, I'm glad they acknowledged it because the Doctor surely would take one look at her and go, hang on. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But then he, he forgot who his own 12th face was based on for most of his time. Which is shocking, considering the shit he went through with Cassilis, or whatever he's called. Um, Achilles. <laughs> whatever he's called, yeah. So basically, um, Gwen Cooper, not Gwen Cooper, Gwyneth, <laughs> Gwyneth, Gwen Cooper version one. So Mark one, Gwen Mark one. Uh, brilliant character. I love Gwyneth. She's such a great character in this uh, thing. You can tell she's like the shy sort of... Mm-hmm retiring church mouse almost possibly based on Carrie have you seen the horror film Carrie before yeah so very much possibly based on on that kind of mold you know quiet god-fearing subservient style um and and again we talk about sort of the um the the scene with Charles Dickens as well where it adds to his character but even on the flip side on the in the parallel that goes alongside it 
um, the conversation between Gwyneth and Rose does their, <sighs> over the dishes is also very well done. That is does a lot amazing. Of our time. I absolutely. That was, I was gonna, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring that up. That that's one of my favourite scenes in this episode where they're talking and she's they're kind of like it's almost like they both suddenly realise even though uh, Gwyneth has the sight and um, so then air quotes has the sight and she has this feeling and knows that Rose is from somewhere different. She can still relate to her in a certain way, but I love that line of dialogue, which is something on the lines of, you know, um, I go to school, uh, you know, once every week and Rose is kind of, it's almost like she's kind of like, you know, sticking her nose in the air a bit, but I think she kind of understands that's just what it was like. Mm-hmm. And she says, Oh, you know, I bunked off school once before to look at boys and then the camaraderie just stops dead yeah <laughs> that is perfect it's i mean it's obviously comedy writing but it's not that's the beauty of it it's it's character uh and period relevant i suppose isn't it because you can tell that she wouldn't even at the age of however Gwyneth's supposed to be maybe 18 or something like that possibly maybe 19 you still get the impression that she is very kind of uh, uh sort of well-behaved and and polite. Well, yeah, and like you said earlier, you know, you talked about uh, God fearing as well, being quite mm. a religious character, and actually you angels know, and all that. Yeah, lust and all that is something that should be trying to avoid. So yeah, that's very true. That's, Going that's... around looking at boys might not be in a nice. <laughs> but I do love that scene as well, where she's talking about the future and she's describing the future, and it's that's just it's almost. Again, we've said this before. It's Russell T Davies and his poetic writing. You know, mm. it's fantastic. Um, the way the way it's, it's written. Awesome. But not just the way it's written, it's the realisation of both the characters' faces when they both yeah. realise that the other one is a bit... There's something wrong with the other one, for yeah. lack of a better phrase. Yeah, yeah. And she's kind of talking, describing like the, the metal birds in the air. No, wait, there's people in them. Metal birds with people in them. And it's just like, what a fucking beautiful way of writing something. That is fantastic. So well done. Um, but we spoke about it earlier. And it's one of your sticking points, Cut, why she sacrifices herself um, unquestioningly. <laughs> and it, it does seem a little odd granted um, and I suppose it's also sad that she sacrifices herself um, I suppose it's a reflection just of her character like it's, presumably she's aware of the situation that is unfolding she just doesn't want to believe it yeah potentially I think she's also kind of I know I've met, said it quite a few times she's just observing but I think she's also pretty headstrong because pretty much the way throughout she's constantly saying to Mr. Sneed no we need to do something about this you know we need to get help we can't let this carry on and she, she it's almost like she's taking she, care of him in a way she is I wouldn't say it was in a headstrong way though it's almost it's always very much asking permission we can't keep going on like this we need to get help it's not so much the she has any choice in it she's just trying yeah exactly to she's trying to influence yeah. as opposed to like you said, be headstrong around it. But again, yeah. I mean, sign of the times and all that. It's again, it's reflected very well on screen. I think. Mm, yeah, very much so. Um, but I, I just think, like, with the dialogue in this particular script as well, I just think you know the character is, is brought to life fantastically. Um, I wonder if. I agree. Obviously, she would have been given the role of Gwen Cooper on the basis of her performance in in that, or at least not solely on it. But it would have gone a hell of a long way towards it. When did Torchwood air? It was like. Two years later, wasn't it? I think it's two thousand seven, maybe. Yeah, so it's about two years later then. Yeah, so yeah, that's that's interesting. Then how that ties in. Um, is there any connection between the rift of the house and uh, the bay? So the rift of the bay where Torchwood is. I think there is. Uh, if you're talking about location wise, the thing that always makes me raise an eyebrow. If you look behind the archway where the Gelf is and where Gwen is, 
I'm not Gwen, Gwyneth, sorry, did the same thing. <laughs> Gwyneth. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm sure they, the actual, uh, I don't know what you call them, where you keep bodies is the same one from the, the Torchwood set, which I'm sure is a coincidence, but they just look scarily similar to me. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, the cold room in the Torchwood base. No, yeah. uh, it can't be actually, can it? Because um, in Torchwood, whichever series it is, they actually, Jack actually ends up in Cardiff Torchwood in the, is it the 1900s or the... And it kind of looks similar to how it looks now in a way, doesn't it? I can't remember. I could be talking shit. I'm probably talking shit. You guys have seen Torchwood, haven't you? All speculation, but it's fun to speculate. It is. We'll have to go back, actually, and watch Torchwood at some point, because I haven't seen that since it aired. He's made promises now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you heard it here, folks. It's going to be a Torchwood uh, review at some point. (laughs) And, of course, we've got Mr. Sneed, who is one of the other minor characters, say, minor characters not really isn't it for the most part isn't he I think he's just your bumbling twatish kind of like character who gets in the way of a lot of things really isn't he uh, he doesn't really seem to be a mechanism for anything other than the resistance against things if that makes sense uh, I guess not but he's not like bad at heart is he no I mean he's a bit pervy though according to I mean uh, apart from you know chloroforming rose and dodgy. with his wandering hands yeah <laughs> mm. yeah it was a yeah your bad heart's kind of quickly falling apart <laughs> well yeah but he doesn't like <laughs> it's not constantly stonewalling is he? he eventually does he just doesn't want I think he just doesn't want the reputation of his business to go completely yeah. under he's the definition of just of that exactly it's my business and everything I'm trying to keep going which yeah, you know, yeah. There are people like that. It's a reasonable reaction. I think this is one of the key things to say about all the key characters in this particular story. They're all really believable. Charles Dickens, completely feasible. Uh, Mr. Sneed, completely feasible. Uh, Gwyneth, completely feasible. There's, you, there's no characters in this that you kind of go, I can't imagine them being like that or doing that sort of thing. It, every cadavers. <laughs> well, yeah, all right, fair point. Yeah, yeah even the audience, uh, Charles Dickens' audience, like freaking the fuck out and running away. Like yeah. every that would happen. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but really I, I love like the fact that actually at first they didn't. Everyone kind of went, "What's going on?" I did that whole yeah. look. Yeah. The moment just started screaming. Everyone went bail, and they just split <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's very well done. Speaking of which, then the final kind of characters to talk about, of course, are the Gelf because we haven't really spoken about them much. So visual effects <laughs> visual effects aside obviously their backstory is that they once had a physical form but due to the time war they lost that physical form became gaseous and now they're supposedly refugees in dwindling numbers nearing extinction and they're looking for uh, you know somewhere to call home a uh, new set of bodies etc um, really good little enemy does it pay dividend that they've only been used the once and they haven't returned I think it does they I haven't think been abused. Opportunity. Well, I don't think I don't know if I want to see them again. To be honest, I don't know what more they could you could do with them. To be honest, why? Well, realistically, you could do a lot with with a gaseous a life gas, form in the store. Gas price crisis. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you had it here. <laughs> it's the twenty twenty two centenary special. The Gelt's problem. So I'm Brit- the Gelt Brit- causing Brit- the Brit- Brit- British gas invi- invaded by uh, the British Gelf. 
British girl. <laughs> yes, British girl. Amazing, amazing. Uh, why, why aren't we writing the show? I have no idea. It's criminal. It's criminal. I, I, I mean, I still think it'd be quite interesting with the girl, but I think there's quite, like, uh, um, Chris was alluding to there, there's a lot you can do with a gaseous enemy, and we don't necessarily see that in who it's always very humanoid type of approaches things so I, I i wouldn't be upset to see them back at all okay i pitch a question to you then right the weeping angels have been back about what five or six times across different stories and whether they've been in main appearances minor appearances whatever but they've been back five or six times they're a very clever alien concept um kind of like the gelf in some respects if it was the other way around and the Weeping Angels has only appeared once. No change to the way that they work or their characters, but they'd only appeared once, and the Gelf had been the ones recurring. Would that make? Would you still want to see more of the Weeping Angels, if that makes sense? Or would you uh, go, Blink was perfect, we never need to see any more of that? Impossible. Oh, you're completely broken if- up. <laughs> you're back now. Oh, okay. Impossible to tell, I'm afraid, because, <laughs> again, it depends on whether or not we had one or two absolute gems. Then, yeah, I'd want to see more of them. Mm. I just don't know whether or not the, the the magic rule of lightning and the bottle works. Of course, it didn't with the Weeping Angels because we it did. Yeah. You know, we had we had you know lightning struck more than once, and it it worked on several several occasions. But I think this is but this is my point though. with the Weeping Angels. The the rules are quite locked with them. And again, it's another humanoid new kind of lock. I just realised a slight pad I've made. Sorry about that. Um, but that's kind of that's the position that they're in. They're humanoid. They can't move if they're being observed. But with a gaseous enemy, there's quite a lot of things you could explore there and different avenues you could take it down. So mm. I don't think it would be either something that becomes very, very drastic or something that would become quite stale. Were there any recurring new enemies from Series 1 throughout the show's run? Series 1, this is. We've had what? We we didn't really have anything. Cassandra. Uh, Cassandra, yeah. Yeah, all right, <laughs> there's your point then, Cassandra. Yeah. So Cassandra came back for Series 2 and it's like, why? Why didn't they bring the Gelf back? What was the difference? It's slightly strange choice there. Um, I think it was meant to be a parallel of the, yeah. the, the Doctor and Rose's like first off-world adventure, mm-hmm. and it's the same villain, but it's a different yeah. Doctor. Um, so I think yeah. it's supposed to have that sort of carryover element. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean. I don't know. I just don't know whether or not. What do you, what do you think? Bring the health pack. Well, see, I'm not that enamoured with them, so no, I'm not that bothered. Okay, so you're just from a stance of they didn't really strike it for you, whereas I'm from a stance yeah, of I love I, them, and I, I think I don't think this be... episode is lightning in a bottle, and I don't think this um, particular villain is lightning in a bottle. Oh, okay, fair enough. That's that's pretty cut and dry, really, and it can't really go anywhere else with that, I suppose. Hmm. Interesting. Boo. 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 Okay. Um, yeah, I never want to see him again. <laughs> just talking very quickly about the visuals. Uh, I'm going to kind of cut cinematography into this in some respect as well because there's two things that I absolutely adore about this. The first thing that I absolutely adore is uh, the camera shot of Rose's footprint uh, as she steps out the TARDIS and the way she sinks her foot into the snow. And it's kind of like as a viewer, it's exciting because you, you it's almost like you feel what Rose is feeling just from that single shot. You know, she's putting her foot on the planet in the past. And it's it's just something that's really kind of like, yeah. I don't know, it's... it's One small step for man. <laughs> There's a term terminology for it, and I can't think what it is, but it's basically just kind of like capturing the emotion of it um, in a really cleverly filmed way. 
uh, the other thing that I really, really love about the visuals in this particular story is, and it's my favourite ever TARDIS dematerialisation uh, throughout any Doctor Who ever, is when it leaves at the end and the little snow swirls yes, come off the window yes. and swirl to the ground. I've never seen anything like it in the show since and it's beautiful. It's great, doesn't it? Mm. And they totally didn't have to do that. And then couple that with the acting of Charles Dickens just walking away and kind of like raising his arms into the air and just belly laughing with just kind of like glee it's just a perfect scene I just think it's done beautifully I'm not quite sure why he's laughing I'd be furious <laughs> he's just like he's just giving up he's like fuck this this is absolutely that's insane the definition of being ditched <laughs> <laughs> if, but for the rest of the story though um, in terms of like the special effects the Gelf aren't that impressive are they no they, they really don't seem to be that impressive in terms of visuals I mean, they're supposed, are they supposed to look like children and sound like children? I believe so. That's the well, no, because it's a it's a, par- a comparison, isn't it? I think I think the gist is when they're blue and they're childlike. That's just the visage that they're giving to Gwen and all the others to in, to kind of insinuate that they're, uh, they're right, yeah. angelic and cherub-like and innocent. When they turn evil, they've have you noticed their voices drop a slight pitch, a slight octave, and they go bright red and they're slightly bigger and kind of you know a bit more consuming of the space. Um, they just seemed a little bit kind of like rubbery around the edges and not as distinguished, I think. And apart from that, there wasn't really any other visuals. There was a walloping great explosion at the end. TARDIS flying through the vortex. That was about it. It was yeah, quite, yeah. quite effects light, really, wasn't it? Hmm. Mm. Okay. All right, well, what about soundtrack then? You mentioned at the start, Cook, and I think you're quite right. There wasn't really much of a soundtrack yeah. to this one, was there? It's quite, quite... No, well, I think the Series 1 soundtrack is very low-key anyway. Hmm. Um, and like cause you, there's a lot of tracks in subsequent ones per episode isn't there but the yeah, series yeah. one is very much a condensed uh, piece so yeah, um, yeah I, I didn't really notice a whole lot in terms of music did you, did you listen out for it this week Matt? Mm, can I say yes? <laughs> we're going to give you <laughs> some homework we're actually going to do an episode where we cover scores and themes <laughs> this is my presentation yes. on the music yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put you both in your comfort zones and I'm going to try and endure something as well at some point maybe a whole Pat Noster gang episode um, okay well that kind of brings us to the end so let's talk about the rating then so uh, Cook how many Sneeds on a scale of 1 to 10 I give it um, 6 Sneeds wow that low okay yeah me. what about you Matt uh, I too give it six. Wow. And the reason behind that again is I think it's a good episode. I just don't think it's one of the ones that I, when I think of who I'm, I think, oh, I need to go watch that one again. Okay. Well, I'm going to give it eight sneeds purely because uh, it's one of my favourites, probably my second favourite from series one. So, uh, yeah, eight from me, which is nice and strong. Um, can't really go any further with that I suppose so that brings us to the end as per usual thank you for tuning in uh, give us a like and subscribe on our Twitter and Facebook channels where we'll be bringing you new reviews and content every week next week something a bit different we'll be covering Doctor Who's toy merch so from day poll to character options we'll be joined by a special guest in the form of Gallifrey Customs the custom action figure builder whose custom Doctor Who sculpts have built up quite the fan base so he'll be joining us next week but until then it's a goodbye from us <laughs>